Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. The internet is the great connector that brings together people from around the world. As of now, the internet is governed by a fairly standardized set of rules and principles of technology. This may be subject to change, however, as China is actively pushing to create a version of the internet more amenable to central control of the one-party state and national sovereignty. This may lead to a fragmentation of the internet where different internets would coexist aside of each other. My name is Johannes Heller-John, and to talk about this issue, I'm joined by Kai von Karnap, analyst at Merix. Currently, he's leading a project on the future of the internet. Kai, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Johannes. Great to be here. To start off, maybe you could describe what the project on the future of the internet is. Yeah. Right. My colleagues uh, at the Science, Technology, Innovation Policy team here at Merix and I, we basically observed that space. I observed that space for a few years now, and we you know, we heard the discussions in various fora picking up momentum around fragmentation. We saw China's role being discussed more frequently um, and independent from the fragmentation debate. In Europe, we talked a lot about TikTok recently. We talked about data security issues, protocols, hardware standards. Huawei debate, you know, a few years ago was also part of that. And we thought it would, would be time to collectively and comprehensively analyze those different observations and uh, basically explore the role of China in, in the question of internet fragmentation. And uh, we were lucky to get funding by the German Foreign Office, um, who supported us in you know that endeavor. Um, and that was uh, very helpful. We had colleagues uh, here at Merix, uh, Rebecca Cezati, uh, Jeroen Kronewegen Lau, Antonia Ahmadi and Vincent Brousset uh, and I, we basically uh, were lucky to you know, spend the better half of 2022 on these questions and tried to categorize them. And we came up with four categories in the end, um, looking at first data questions, um, second software and websites as a second basket, and then third protocols, and lastly hardware. As you just said, uh, in the project you're looking at the fragmentation of the internet and fragmentation is a term that is used in very different uh, subject mm. areas so maybe we could go into detail on what fragmentation means mm. with relation to the internet mm. so when i think about the term fragmentation now i like to go back to the year 1996 and i think that really explains some of the conflicts around that term the difficulty to really understand it but also where it really comes from what it means um, because 1996 is the year where John Perry Barlow writes this big, uh, like actually not, not big text, a small text, but it becomes a symbol for a culture in the Silicon Valley for the decades to follow. And it's a declaration of cyberspace, he calls it. And it basically says the internet is a technology that cannot be governed by government. It cannot be ruled. It basically is an anarchical, neoliberal, later to become neoliberal force for um, you know, to, for changing the world. And uh, it kind of describes the way th people think about the internet from the Silicon Valley um, for a long time. And at the same time in 1996, there's a couple of researchers who look at the internet and how it plays out in the Balkans, while the Balkans are basically uh, recuperating from the fall of the Soviet Union. And they find that the internet really feels different from from region to region within the Balkans, and then they term that kind of uh, experience uh, as balkanization of the internet, which is the first kind of way of thinking about a fragmented internet. And at the same time in China, you see that Jiang Zemin, the then general secretary and chairman, starts to uh, reconsider the choice to connect to the global internet in 1994. 
China connects to the U.S. internet. They build their own university internet. And then in 1996, um, he says we need to seize the information uh, space of the internet, and uh, they basically decided that also all gateways have to be controlled by the postal uh, service and cannot be in public hands. And that's, you know, in other countries you have gateways also in the control of other entities than the state. But so 1996 is really the kind of era where um, the, the, the first, uh, you know, fundamentals are set for fragmentation today. So I established it's a historic concept, but people actually use the term to actually to try to describe fragmentation today. And so there's lots of different definitions out there. You know, you can look at academia, you could look at internet governance bodies and practitioners, you could look at media. But, you know, I think the most sensible way is to think about it in three realms. And one is to say that the user experience should be basically universal and identical across the globe. And anything that goes against the universal experience is a type of fragmentation, right? So um, that comes from that cyberspace declaration thinking about the internet, which says, you know, it should be basically the same in the US as in, in, in Germany or in Russia or in China. So yeah, and th then there's a second way of thinking about internet fragmentation, and that goes into the more technical idea of fragmentation. So it's not just about how users experience, but it's it's more how can devices communicate with each other. And the basic idea of the internet is that you want to have uh, certain rules and you have uh, you know certain ideas behind every program, any kind of software that is built for it, so that every device and every user can connect with each other. But if there are technical barriers to that, then you have a different kind of fragmentation. So the first one would be just users can access a, web a website, but just because it's blocked, but it's not, not a technical reason. It's a government that says no, or it's a, it's a website that just says we won't let you in. But the second kind of fragmentation is that there is just literally no way, no possibility anymore to reach a certain point in the network. And the third type, and that's a more recent way of thinking about fragmentation, is to think about different governance models behind um, the internet. Because there's a lot of actors involved, there's a lot of rules that have to be made, um, the question of, you know, data privacy and all that is kind of an, uh, you know, a negotiation process of different actors. And the question is what kind of governance model you really want to have within a given region. And um, there you can also say there is a type of fragmentation in the sense that there are different ideas within a certain region of how that kind of power dynamic should be distributed. Um, and you classic, you know, in the classic sense, you have something like a multi-stakeholder model where you have civil society involved next to governments and next to private sectors. But you could also have a very sovereigntist model where only the you know the state and the party plays a role. You could have a constitutionalist way of thinking about internet governance as in the constitution plays the major role. You want to have laws being enforced in cyberspace as opposed to just negotiating everything with, you know, big group of stakeholders. So you could say there's basically three types of fragmentation. You you just talked about how in China um, it joined the, the US-led internet in, in 1994, but already a couple of years later said that China would need to be able to control the, the information space. Mm. So does that mean that what we see today is like Chinese control over its part of the internet is, is nothing new? Is this only a continuation of a policy that already started just after the internet arrived mm. in China? Is that correct? And, and yeah, I think in many, in many ways you can argue that um, it was not that the internet was not open at certain points. In fact, it was quite open the first few decades um, in terms of user experience. But I think the fundament was late and, and what we see now and why that matters that 
you know, what I described happened in 1996, is that Xi Jinping really picks up on that idea again. He could have also chosen to go a different path, but he basically in 2016, 2017 decides to say, okay, he didn't even, he started at 2012, really, you know, with ascension, but um, he goes back to that idea and says, we need to have more control. We want to have types of softwares, types of protocols, types of um, hardware that are really uh, in the way we envision internet. And he, he picks up on that notion and reinforces it. So that's why I think it matters. And that's a continuation of Jan Demin's idea in, in the 90s. All right, then let's uh, have a look at these uh, different aspects that you mentioned. And maybe we can start with, with hardware. So how does the fragmentation of the internet shows itself mm -hmm. in the hardware space? I said we have these four different areas we looked at, but they're really interconnected in many ways. They share certain, you know, similar types of fragmentations. China tried for a long time to really focus on domestic suppliers, for sort of the hardware that provides internet for users, backbone is often called. And China has been long trying to focus on domestic suppliers opposed to international ones. So that's always been kind of a problem in that space. Um, so Nokia and Ericsson, they have their, their share in the Chinese network, but it's comparatively slow, uh, low to what other international suppliers would have in other regions. And what we see today, I think the most noteworthy is that there is a sort of bundling approach of trying to bundle the hardware that China exports to other countries with, let's say, protocols that are also that are really the fragmenting factor that we want to focus at but bundling them um, is basically saying we have kind of cheaper hardware we have different kind of protocols we're going to come to that in a moment and by that you basically sell a whole internet package do you see a likelihood of, of uh, if the, this trend continues to to have like different internet spheres globally mm -hmm. like country x that aligns more with the u.s Uh, people from that country go to another country why that is um, more reliant to China and their mobile phones, their computers will just not be able to use the internet in their country. Is that is that possible or likely? I think it is possible um, and I think the biggest problem would be hardware because that's the hardest one to really change again uh, because you basically have to rebuild the whole system from scratch and we do see some of these efforts already uh, and it's probably worthwhile to first discuss protocols and then see what the implications are because I think those two facts are really intertwined. So the idea of the current set of protocols, so first maybe to say the internet basically exists, you know, on a, on a certain system of rules, how devices interconnect and, you know, speak and how they, how they package data, what is the format of, of different kind of communication channels. And I think an important core principle in that layer is that you have something, we call it net neutrality. So you cannot really see what is inside data that's being sent around in order to protect um, the different actors on the internet. And the benefit of that is that uh, it's really hard to discriminate against different kinds of, of traffic. And that is a core idea of the internet. So you want to be able to send open and you know very secure traffic, and it shouldn't be that you pay more because you, s you use a certain kind of service as opposed to someone else. So uh, there's a certain anonymity also in that ingrained, but that's, you know, that's a different, different topic, I guess. But the idea of China's internet protocols that have been developing over the last few years, and they have, very controversially so, is that that is changing. So you, the current internet protocol is often referred to as the IPv6, IPv6, and there is a addition to that that Ch the Chinese engineers and state officials, you know, from Huawei and other companies have baked up, which is IPv6+. And that would allow you to basically have within the data label, you know, there's always labels on top of the data, 
you have little additions that will uh, tell you who sent it where, or who wants to send which, what kind of data to which addressee. And as that has benefits, you know, the selling point is that you can, as you know, an IoT or like little industrial company, you, you need a certain kind of transparency, what kind of data is running around where, and that, that might make your whole business model more efficient. But the problem is, of course, that you can also say, well, we don't want to have certain types of um, entertainment industries roaming through this kind of part of the network. And I think that is what is a major change of principles and problem in that space. So how could the Chinese government use this to its advantage? I mean, is, is it only like, oh, we don't want to have like Netflix streaming movies in China or, or does it go deeper? So the, the the big plan behind this is to really start rolling out these applications this year. So 2023 is the beginning of having more focused applications and more focused trials. So it's really hard to say it's it's already a problematic concept in itself, but it it, it shows a certain way of thinking about internet protocols and inter internet trafficking and networking. And I think um, the problem is what could you do with a certain transparency within data streams that are not following net neutrality rules? And I think what is probably why Europe also is interesting in that space is because internet service providers in Europe have been trying to formulate similar ideas over the last few years. Um, there's currently a proposal uh, sitting at the European Commission called the Fair Share Proposal, which basically in some, you know, on a technical level, it's the same idea of trying to make network data more transparent to internet service providers. And their point is to say, well, We have this massive bandwidth, but it's not individual users that really flood this network with their WhatsApp messages. It's um, streaming providers that basically stream, you know, on Netflix, YouTube, Amazon Prime, and everything. So they should also be charged more based on you know how much bandwidth they really use up. Um, and I think in in that regard, you see this uh, alliance of interest, and I think. Um, The danger is at the end of the day that you would be basically as a user still uh, pay more or less for certain services and you would be prioritized for, for different kinds of services. And that's really a different kind of way of thinking about internet. And I don't think um, as an individual user, you would want that. Staying on the individual user experience, maybe we can go on to the issue of websites, apps, access to resources. How, how is China's approach uh, fragmenting the internet mm. in, in that regard? So in that space, uh, I think it, it's been the most pronounced of, you know, within the last decade, I think for sure, that most people would think about the Great Firewall, for example. And when they think about that, I think they often really mean um, fragmentation on that layer because it's really difficult for users within China to access foreign websites That's basically a part of the user experience fragmentation that we discussed, and it refers to websites and applications. But what we've seen in the last, I guess, year and a half, maybe two years, is, is something like a turnaround of that great firewall in the sense that it's much more difficult to access Chinese resources now. And that was always kind of difficult if you ever try to access websites in China and you live in Europe or something. You often would have to wait a long time for the websites to load um, or, you know, you would need to use VPNs just because the connection would be quicker or something. It's, it's been always kind of tricky just because the routing is kind of difficult and it takes a long time and then, you know, that just is, is uh, causing some delays. But 
Uh, what's happening in the last few years is that a so-called geoblocking has been um, sort of ramped up. So um, geoblocking is a, also a technical way of saying I as a country can block IP addresses from a certain other region. For example, there's different ways of geoblocking, but that's I think the most common. And then we don't let you in and access that website. And I think that is a practice that has been slowly been ramped up. There's just a couple of studies out on this, and I think more work needs to be done in that space. But we've noticed that, and there is a couple of uh, smaller research papers on this or or media reports. There's, for example an American law um, association that was uh, accusing the Ch Chinese People's Supreme Court to block Americans for um, for a whole month from accessing the website. So that's kind of the examples that we talk about. And there's another form next to geoblocking, which um, pertains to the access to social media apps. And that's been basically uh, made much more difficult in the last year and a half, maybe two years. So it's just almost impossible to access some of some of China's most useful and most viable and most popular websites. So you know, if you live in the Netherlands and the UK, um, you can't access Weibo, for example. There's just no way to register for that account. And um, why is it not possible? Like, do I, can I just log on and, and put my name in? That, yeah, you would think so. But so I think the the weird thing about that is that China has been always using mobile phone numbers for registration purposes. And that made sense because China's internet was always built on mobile phones, much more than laptops and, and, and PCs and everything. So it made sense to use mobile phone numbers. But now I think that's been abused in a sense that once you try to register, it only offers you a few country prefixes. And uh, sometimes they're just, you know, 12 or 20 or 50 available. And if you live in a country that is not on the list, you just can't register. You, know, you won't receive the confirmation um, message. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's been used to basically shield off certain regions to access Chinese websites. And it's, the weird thing is, is there's an, we, we try to, to find the logic and patterns behind that, but it doesn't really seem to be the case that there are clear rationales behind that. Uh, probably also more needs to be done in that space, but that's definitely one of the bigger types of fragmentation observation that we discuss. The final issue that we wanted to talk about, uh, the final area that you looked at, is data governance. Yeah, data governance again. It's 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 a field that has um, that has intersection with 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 the other three that we discussed. But on the data layer, I think it's quite straightforward, really. I think that's also one thing that we probably that you and I have heard from the public media in general is that China is ramping up data um, sovereignty laws and, and and rules over the last two or three years, probably even longer than that. 2017 is really where it started, but. What that means is that China is trying to keep data within China that is important. And the question then is what is important? Um, and there is, you know, there's security concerns, national security concerns that basically undergird that whole rationale of, of what is important data. It also pertains to personal and private data. But the core idea is that there is a whole, you know, there's dozens and dozens of regulations and laws that say this can be important data, this can, this can be important data, and we have a certain kind of complicated review mechanism. And it basically tries to localize data, to different kinds of data types. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, it's such a complex framework that Now it's really just there's remnants of of data that can roam free that basically don't have to go through review processes because the industry is not relevant enough in terms of national security. But it's um, it's it's much harder compared to other regions to really get data across the border, and that's really 
what the fragmentation then is. You know, the, can data travel across the border? Or do you have to go through a security mechanism, like a security review process? Um, and Europe has some of that too. So, you know, GDPR uh, that protects data privacy of users is a type of that data regulation too. But it's really only for the privacy of users and not, not so much for other parts of the economy. But for, for the Council of Foreign Relations in the US, for example, that was really, GDPR was the first type of data localization and data fragmentation that we saw in the world. So they, they keep blaming the Europeans for starting that whole debate. Um, but now I would say that it's really China that, that has been ramping up these data laws and regulations and it's a complex regime. It's really complex laws and everything. So, um, It's, it's just uh, the data exchange between Europe and China is, is just diminishing. To pose my question from before again, do you see it possible or even likely mm. that now, including like all these uh, different aspects that we talked about, that we're going towards a world where there are different internet spaces mm. that coexist but can only communicate on a very limited basis? Mm. I wanted to make sure that in the beginning, you know, talk about the balkanization of the 90s, to make the point that there's always been regional differences to some extent. And for users, that's sort of fine. Like you have to, I think, accept that certain regions will have a different experience in the internet than others. And that's, that's totally legitimate and no problem with any human rights, for example. But the point was that there's certain kind of principles that the developers of software, of protocols, of hardware really have to believe in and also integrate in, in the products they build in order to keep at least a potential to, to interconnect with other devices and to maximize the interconnection of um, of the internet. Um, and the, the phase we're in right now is that that might end to some extent because uh, if you bundle hardware and protocols in a way that make it makes it difficult to connect to other parts of the internet, then you really have an almost irreversible kind of networking technology in a certain region. And What I discussed with IPv6, um, so it is backwards compatible. So you can, if you build an, a network, you know, with IPv6 plus, you might use different kind of hardware product as well. You can interact and interconnect with IPv6 internet, with our internet in, in that sense. But the problem is you could also choose from the IPv6, from the big norm standpoint, you could decide not to interact with IPv6 plus. And you can then basically ostracize, and like you know, not ostracize, but like sort of fragment from your side. And once you draw that border, and that would be a political decision, it's going to be much harder to really interconnect at all on a conceptual level. So I think um, it would be important at this point to be aware of these much, you know, much more long-term consequences of fragmentation as opposed to previous ones. But we're not there yet. But I think the possibilities are on the table and are being explored with, and I think that's a dangerous kind of endeavor. As a final question, I would like to hone in on the interests of Europe in, in this issue, as well as what kind of actions European decision makers can take. So a few things have happened in the last year, especially 2022, and I think they're noteworthy and they are worth supporting and maintaining. And that is trying to support these basic principles of openness, security, transparency, net neutrality. And that's been an effort by... Uh, The US and European countries, uh, but also 30 other countries that have signed another declaration. But um, it's government saying this time, we want to maintain internet on these principles that ensure interconnectivity. Um, and that ensures not just the social kind of internet, but also technical aspects. 
And by signing, they basically try to convince people that build protocols, that build software, and that interact in the internet to follow suit. And I think it's really important to 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 deliver on that signature. And on Europe, the European Commission is working on certain, you know, there's little working groups trying to figure out what they can do in order to, you know, to to fulfill that promise. Um, but it's really, I think, the one critique is that it's only government that signed off of it. Um, I mean, they say it's a multi-stakeholder sort of idea behind it, but then it's just government signing it. And uh, I think they haven't really, you know, interacted with civil society to the extent they could have. I think that is that is one critique. And the other is that it's literally only 30, 34 or 33 countries. And um, I think a few big ones are missing. So I think globally there should be bigger effort to get more signatures. But I think that is probably the best answer right now to um, maintain, um, you know, most open, most interconnected internet. Okay, so for European decision makers, try to maintain the open internet and involve also non-governmental stakeholders in the issue. Absolutely, and I think maybe maybe one additional thought because a few months later, um, the Chinese State Council produced uh, an answer to that in a, in a sense. Uh, it's a it's a it's not a declaration. I think it's just a white paper, but it's it's basically an answer, and it's and it's titled I think the uh, Common Destiny in Cyberspace White Paper. And it's also a geopolitical answer, um, you know, or, or suggestion, um, how to build the internet. And, um, it, it, there's language on involving civil society and, you know, maintaining an open and uh, sort of secure internet. Um, but it also clearly says we need to focus on multilateral agreements. So, you know, basically have uh, only governments just making, making decisions rather than civil society engineers or whatever. Um, and I think that is kind of dangerous. Um, it's it's a white paper. They're all just political visions, so it's really hard to say how much that really will result in. But I think it's having that in mind is uh, it would be important to maintain a, a strong agenda on, on getting people on board with the declaration of the future of the internet. As this is an issue that touches all of us, I think it's definitely a space to watch. And following your research is definitely one way to do it. So, uh, dear listener, you can find uh, four short analyses on the issue of fragmentation of the internet and the future of the internet on our website. And Kai, thank you very much for your time and your insight. Thank you very much, Jonas. And dear listener, until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.